Thank you, Kelly. Beautiful job. And very appropriate for this morning. Take your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 14. What is the Christian to do when the world as we know it seems to be falling apart? What do we do in days of distress and trouble? Those are not really idle questions because they seem so appropriate for the days in which we live. Americans, even Christian Americans, are troubled by what the future holds for our country. This morning, I want us to look at what Jesus promises. John chapter 14, verse number 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. First of all, I want us to see this morning that the problem is fear. Jesus says in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. The words let not in verse 1 convey a truth that is often overlooked as we read that text. With the words let not, Jesus conveys the truth the disciples and we as believers today can do something about our problem of fear. They held in their own hands the remedy to their heart trouble. It was possible for them to either continue allowing this to happen or choose not to let it happen. According to the Greek text, Jesus was not saying, don't let your heart start being troubled. But rather he was saying, stop letting your heart be troubled. He was recognizing that his disciples were in fact troubled in heart, and he was urging them not to continue in that state. The Lord is calling his disciples to deal with their fears. Great. How? Well, that brings us to the prescription. Believe. The answer to fear is faith. He stated in the second part of verse 1, you believe in God, believe also in, my, in me. Keep in mind that the word believe here does not mean just to mentally acknowledge that God exists and that Christ is his only son, but rather we are to place our trust in the living God and his son, Jesus Christ. 
the disciples already have complete faith in an invisible God whom they have never seen. And Jesus is asking them to continue believing in him, in him when he is no longer visible to them. John MacArthur states, the kind of belief that Jesus was talking about in John chapter 14 isn't the same kind of belief expressed in salvation. He wasn't saying, believe in me and you will be saved. The disciples were already saved. The word believed here in John 14.1 is in the present tense in the Greek, which conveys the concept of continual trust. Jesus asked the twelve to keep on trusting him, even when he wouldn't be visible to them anymore. What mattered more than the troubles that surrounded them was that they had someone in whom they could place their trust. And Jesus is calling them to exercise faith. The main point is that the disciples need to make a conscious choice that in the troubles that lie ahead, they will place their trust in their heavenly Father and in Jesus. The way to an untroubled heart is to believe God and to believe in his son. In fact, the tense says, keep on trusting God. Keep on trusting in me. The third thing he tells us about is the provision, a place in the father's house. It says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will receive you unto myself. The word translated mansions in the King James Version is found only twice in the entire New Testament, both times in John chapter 14, here in verse 2, and again in verse number 23. The word mansion is the translation of a Latin into the Latin, Latin mansions. Consequently, when the English translations were made, the early translators followed the Latin rendering rather than the Greek original. And so we have the word mansions in our Bibles. Unfortunately, that gives us a picture in our mind of separate mansions apart from a main house. We visualize being met at the gates of heaven by a real estate agent who gives us a map and says, your mansion is two blocks down and then one block on the left. But the word would probably be better translated places to live. The phrase, in my father's house are many places to live. That translation does not diminish the Word of God, it raises the Word of God. It presents intriguing possibilities. With the limitless universe at his disposal to populate with his saints as he sees fit, 
Oh, what possibilities. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 6 tells us how large the city will be in heaven. It says that city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. The description that we're given of the new heavenly city is a cube with equal sides of approximately 1,500 miles in every direction. An Australian engineer calculated that that would be 2,250,000 square miles. To give you a reference point, you'll like this, Josh, London is 140 square miles. At the ratio of population in London, the heavenly city could hold 100 billion people. It could hold even more than 30 times the population of the world as it exists now and still have plenty of room to spare. Now, that's many dwelling places. Jesus is saying, don't be troubled. Just a little while longer and we'll all be together in heaven. When the great Christian scientist Sir Michael Faraday was dying, journalists quizzed him about his speculations about life after death. (laughs) Faraday cried out, speculations? I don't know anything of speculations. I'm resting on certainties. Faraday knew that his Redeemer lived and that he would too. The fourth thing that we see is the promise, I will come again and receive you to myself. From the thought of his going away, Jesus proceeds to the certainty of his coming back. Jesus uses the present tense to state emphatically, I am coming back. Christ's second coming is so certain that he speaks as if it is something that is already happening. There is no doubt it will certainly come to pass. The best part of heaven is that Jesus is there. But he is not content to be there without his people. Not only is Christ preparing heaven for us, but he has promised that he will come and take us there. We are not left behind to find our own way to heaven. Jesus is coming back to get us. We are to trust him. He is the way. And when the right time comes, he will take us by the hand and he will lead us to the Father's house. When a visitor comes to our church, and ask how to take their child to the children's area. You could offer them directions. But it would be better if someone told them, just follow me and I'll take you there. Instead of trying to give them a set of intricate instructions. That's what Jesus offers to do. Instead of just giving us directions, 
He will take us to the Father's house. We don't have to worry about finding our way to the Father's house, whether at death or at the rapture. We don't have to worry because Jesus is coming back to receive us. There are two things I want you to notice about his second coming. One is the certainty of that coming. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Now, there is no doubt that he did go. History is unanimous on that point. The record shows that he did go away. The garden tomb is empty. There is no grave bearing the body of Jesus Christ anywhere on this earth. And because we are certain that he has gone away, we can be certain that he will come again. When Jesus says, I'm coming again, he's saying it's as certain as if it had already happened. The second thing our text reveals is that it will be a personal return. Jesus says, I will come again, reassuring reassuring his disciples that he himself would return. As the angels proclaimed to the disciples, as they stood around gazing into heaven after his ascension in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, they said, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again. The greatest fact of the past is that Christ came and died for your sins. The greatest fact of the future is that he is coming again. The second coming is so sure that it is mentioned 318 times in the New Testament. He is coming back. You can count on it. Jesus links his second coming with receiving of his people to himself. The promise of 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 says, And the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus says, where I am, there you may be also. You want to circle those words in your Bible, I and you. They are emphatic. Those two pronouns belong together, I and you. The effect is to emphasize the truth that the aim is that all of us will be included in that fellowship with the Lord Jesus. I want you to notice Jesus did not say, I am coming again and will receive you to heaven. He says, I'm coming again and I will receive you to myself. A person, not a place, is our destination. When he says, I will receive you, literally it means I will receive you face to face. And fifth, there is the purpose that where I am, there you may be also. 
I think it's important that you notice that Jesus does not give a description of heaven here. Other than his disciples will be where he is. Through the centuries, we as Christians have made a big deal of harps and crowns, of angels singing around the throne, of streets of gold, all of which are true. But the really important thing is that we will be with the Lord. On the surface, it may appear that that's the same point as I just went over, but in reality, it tells us more. It is the recognition that we will not only go to heaven, but we will recognize that Jesus is preparing an eternal place for us as individuals. When life caves in and troubles surround us, and indeed they will, we can find comfort and rest for our troubled hearts in the fact that there is a place, an eternal home, that is being especially prepared for you. He repeats that his going is intimately connected with his preparation of a place for us. We are not for a moment to think that he has forgotten us or that he is unconcerned about our welfare. Some people think that this Christian desire for heaven is escapism. That we are being so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. I don't think so. We can be so pious that we're not any earthly good. We can be so religious that we're not any earthly good. We can be so impractical that we're not any good. But I do not believe that we can be so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. The reality of our heavenly home helps us to guard our troubled hearts. When we are troubled apart, we need only to remember that Jesus has not abandoned us, nor forsaken us. He is coming back, and when he does, he will receive us unto himself, that where he is, we can also be. Ah, but how would he get there? The pathway, Jesus. The Lord concludes his statement by saying in verse 4, And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. And Thomas did not understand that. And in verse 5, he asked the question that probably all the disciples were thinking. Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus responded in verse 6 saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. No church, no denomination can say I am the way. You are not saved by ritual, be it baptism or any other. You are not saved by having a good character, or by performing good works, you are saved only by coming to God through Christ. You must come to God through faith in Christ to be saved. There is no detour around him, for he is the way. 
we as Christians are always dismayed by the world's opposition to our gospel. For this reason, many Christians emphasize a non-offensive attitude toward believers and seek to use expressions that avoid giving offense. And so long as we do not compromise our message, our biblical standards of behavior, it is proper for believers to show such care in dealing with non-Christians. Yet as we do this, we will soon find out that the gospel's real offense is one that we cannot avoid. We think that this opposition will have lessened because of the advent of our modern age given on the emphasis of toleration. Instead, the opposite has happened. It is true that unbelievers grant tolerance to every religion except Christianity. Precisely because they see the gospel is seen in such an ultimate intolerant creed. Objections to the doctrine have marked the world's hatred of Jesus ever since he spoke those words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. The world outside of the church hates that statement. And even Christians sometimes are tempted to back away from it. But the truth remains. The reason that Jesus Christ can declare that he alone is a way and that there is no other way is because Jesus Christ is the only person who can deal with our sin problem. We are alienated from God because of our sin. We are not slightly tarnished by sin. We are dead. We are lost. We are condemned by our sin. We cannot influence on our part a right relationship with God. The only way we can have a right relationship with him is through grace. The only way back to God is by the way of the cross of Jesus Christ. The sinless son of God took our sins upon himself and he died in our place. He died as our substitute. He paid our sin debt. No one else could do that. And that's why he's the only way. Now, by the way, that's not the only scripture that says that. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says, nor is, there any, there, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. I like the way John Phillips says, he says it this way, truth is always exclusive, always dogmatic, and always intolerant of non-truth. 
Otherwise, it would not be truth, eternal and absolute. It makes no difference whether the truth is a mathematical truth, a scientific truth, or a spiritual truth. Truth is always, in some sense, narrow. It is error that is broad and accommodating. Many people in our world today, as you well know, believe as long as you are sincere, it's okay. But that's not true. And that's not what the Bible teaches. There is no such thing as one truth for you and another truth for you. If you stated that in any other field besides religion, someone would say that's ridiculous. So I close with this. The question is whether you are on the way to heaven or in the one who is on the way to heaven, who is the way to heaven, if you can say, I am on my way to heaven because, and put anything else in the blank besides Jesus Christ, you're not on your way to heaven. That's why Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. He means believe into. Believe in such a way that you are attached to, united with, so that where Jesus goes, there you go. Let's pray. Father, I pray for each one under the sound of my voice this morning. I pray that the truth might be received. It could be that everybody here this morning is saved. They know for sure that they're going to heaven. I suspect that's not true. And so I pray for that one who is here this morning, who has no assurance, no reason to believe, that spend eternity in heaven. May they today realize that they are a sinner, just like everybody else in this auditorium. And that Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary to pay for their sin. And that all they must do is repent of that sin and accept what Jesus has done on the cross of Calvary on their behalf. And so, Father, if there is one, I pray you'd help them this morning. I pray each of us would take to heart the truth that you are preparing a place for us. For those of us who have accepted you as our personal Lord and Savior, you are even now preparing a place for us in heaven. And as grand as all the things that are told us about in the Bible about heaven, it will exceed our every thought. Father, I pray that you'd comfort those who may be distressed this morning. I do pray specifically this morning to those in our country who have been devastated by this tragedy. There are families that are grieving. Father, would you touch them this morning? Would you draw them close to yourself? 
There are others who are injured, some of many of whom may be fighting for their lives. And Lord, I pray for healing to their bodies. I also pray for healing for our country. I pray that we would be able to draw close to you and thereby eliminate the hatred and distrust in our country. Lord, heal us for you alone can. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to have a short.